It's now nearly a dozen years since the old Abbey Theatre was burnt down. On that July night in 1951, when much of the building was destroyed, old friends of the theatre felt that they had lost a dear friend. We all know that a new building is being erected, but for many of the faithful friends there will never be anything like the old theatre. People who worked in it loved it too, though it was cramped and even pokey. One of the people who loved it was the late Lennox Robinson. He acted in it, produced for it, wrote some of the best and most successful plays and became one of its directors. One of the shorter things he wrote about his beloved Abbey was a conversation piece entitled Pictures in a Theatre. You will hear it in a few moments. His words will help you to see in your imagination that old building, the fire with its pictures, the stage and the auditorium where playwrights, producers, actors and audience collaborated in bringing so many masterpieces to triumphant life. You will hear Lennox Robinson himself as he talks to a young American visitor from Montana. We take the recording from our archives where it has been preserved for so many years and we hope, as you make allowances for the quality, that it will rouse old memories and create new ones. Here then is a great man of the Irish theatre, charming, ironic, humorous and full of memories, Lennox Robinson in his conversation piece, Pictures in a Theatre. One day, Mr. Robinson received a letter from Professor Merriam of Montana University, Missoula. It said that Brendan O'Neill was in the American army and, if in luck and he survived, would come to Dublin to look up relations and that he was interested in the theatre and could Mr. Robinson do anything for him. Mr. Robinson made an appointment one morning in the vestibule of the Abbey Theatre. Brendan turned out to be a strapping six-footer and he brought with him a rather weedy young man. He introduced him. This is my second cousin, David, from Sligo, or near there. From the borders of Sligo and Donegal, sir. Oh, I know Sligo fairly well, and a bit of Donegal. Well, what I want to know is about this theatre. You see, my eldest brother, he's 16 years older than me, he was at a summer school once in Missoula, and you were there, and you lectured about Ireland in the Abbey Theatre, and you produced a play among the students. And then a few years after, he saw the Abbey players in Helena. I don't think you were with them. Well, he fell for them, but my dad, <laughs> he's a real old Irishman. Uh, he'd seen the same sort of plays in Chicago years back. He liked the acting, but he said some of the plays were terribly crude. That uh, Playboy, for instance, by Singh. Singh. You singe a cat. You sing, sing. <laughs> Thanks. I accept the correction. But there was one of yours he liked, something about the back hills. I'm glad he liked it. He said it was all right. Oh, I mean, he liked it. Now, tell me about this theatre. There's so much to tell. Lots of books have been written about it. I've written about it so often myself. Let's start by just looking at these pictures in the hall. Don't you think it's a lovely little gallery? Oh, it certainly is. I don't pretend to know much about pictures, but I... I know what I like. Well, now, isn't that the best reason for liking a picture? So let's just go quietly round, starting on our right. And No, for the moment, we'll skip the first one and look at the one over the gas fire. She looks a fine, powerful old woman. She was fine and powerful. 
That is Lady Gregory. There would be no theatre here. You and I wouldn't be standing here if it wasn't for her. She was of the Protestant class, one some people sneeringly call the ascendancy class, and she was a great Irish woman. She met Yeats, and she knew a man called Edward Martin, a neighbour of her own, a Catholic landlord in County Galway. Martin and Yeats had written plays, and they wanted them produced, and they thought of having them done in London. Lady Gregory, who up to this had no particular interest in the drama, said they should be done in Dublin. And thanks to her energy, Dublin, in Dublin they were done. This was oh, way back in 1899. In a few years' time, she became absorbed in the Irish theatre. She started to write plays herself and ended up by being one of the most important playwrights of her early days. She was a director of our theatre, and without her firm hand and her inflinching belief in our theatre's future, we should have no national theatre in Ireland today. But let's leave her for a minute. She'll crop up again and again, for she permeates every stick and stone of this building. We'll turn back and forward to those two young men whose portraits hang on her right and left. Their names are Faye, Frank Faye and Willie Faye. Nice-looking fellas. Yes, aren't they? And so beautifully painted by J.B. Yeats. He was W.B. Yeats's father and the father of Jack B. Yeats, our finest, most original painter in Ireland today. Some think one of the most exciting painters in Europe and America. But the Fays, they were brothers, were acting in small halls in Dublin, and they got to know what Yeats and Martin were trying to do, knew they were trying to create an Irish drama. On Yeats's side, a poetic, heroic drama, on Martin's side, a more psychological drama. Those early performances had been given by professional English companies, generally in some big Dublin theatre. But when the Fays and their friends joined Yeats's group, a change took place. The performances were held now in small Dublin halls, ill-fitted for stage purposes. The audiences were generally small, and none of the players were paid. The brothers were contrasted in their gifts. Frank, a beautiful speaker of verse, that's the feller on the left. Willie, a comedian of genius. Can't you see the poetry in Frank's eyes? Oh, I sure can. Who's that left of the door? Oh, that's Dr. Larchet. Not a doctor of medicine, a doctor of music. He came to the theater a young man as leader of the orchestra. It was a poorly paid job. Jack Larcher became very successful and busy, teaching, composing, university work, examinations. But he so loved the Abbey that he could not bear to leave it. He knew every play that was performed, though he would always consider the acts of a play as the interval, and his music the coup of the evening, and many others agreed with him. And they'd go out for a smoke during the acts and come back for what we call the interval. It's a very fine portrait. Very like him. And though Jack doesn't conduct for us anymore, I don't think he ever misses a new play. Above the door is uh, George Russell, better known as A.E. He'd a lot to do with the theatre in the very early days before it had a theatre, but then he dropped out of the movement. But we've missed the delicate-looking chap in the corner. Ah, that's a man called Padre Collum. He was one of our earliest playwrights. He started to write at about the same time as Singh, that is to say, when the theatre was beginning to turn 
from the poetic, heroic theatre Yeats had dreamed of to a more realistic type of play, but it had not yet reached the harshly realistic plays of T.C. Murray, R.J. Ray and myself, the three cork realists, as Yeats called us. But, Mr. Hill, didn't you say that when you came to Dublin six or more months ago you had some letters of introduction from Padre Column to people over here? Yes. You know them? Yes, as a matter of fact, I did. Mm. All right. Well, Padre Colum wrote about contemporary country life, the life of the small farmer, such plays as The Land and the Fiddler's House, bringing to them a poetry of speech, not as emphasized as sing speech, but essentially poetry. He has lived in New York for many, many years and has a distinguished literary position there. You've heard of him? You've just told me you've heard of him. Well, I certainly have. So that's Pedrick Carlin. Yes, but a long time ago, before you knew him. His best play, written much later than the ones I have named, was not about the country. It was about a country town and a workhouse master. It is called Thomas Muskery. And I'm proud to remember that I gave it its first production. Uh, who's that above the box office, staring down? That's W.B. Yeats, son of the man who painted the portraits and the originator of this theatre. Yes, I don't think he cared very much for plays, David. He told me once that the only plays he really liked were Shakespeare's. He wrote some beautiful verse plays himself, but when our theatre grew realistic, he stood aside, though late in life he wrote a very remarkable little prose play about Jonathan Swift called The Words Upon the Windowpane. But he was much more a poet than a dramatist, and funny to say, a hard-headed man of business could even understand a balance sheet. That's not an easy thing to do. As you say, he stares down. I like to fancy he's watching the people booking seats and wondering whether there will be a full house tonight and whether the ladies behind the little window are giving the correct change. I bet they are. But now, look, uh, let's uh, swing to the left, to the far corner. Now, that lovely, delicate portrait. Look at the hair. It's of Miss Horniman. She was an English woman who got to know Yeats and to admire his work and the work of the players, who were still only an amateur company with no theatre, not even a hall of their own. She took over this old theatre, furbished it up, made additions to it, and for a number of years gave it an annual subsidy. To have a permanent home, to have a fixed income, even if a small one, made a tremendous lot. The players could now be paid regular salaries. Oh, fantastically small salaries, judged by present-day standards. But it enabled them to leave their jobs and to devote all their time to the theatre. I believe she was difficult to work with. I never met her. She wrote on yellow paper in red ink, and Singh used to declare that he grew slightly ill when he saw a yellow envelope in the morning's post. <laughs> but difficult though she may have been, this theatre is deeply in her debt. Uh, the next is a powerful-looking chap. Ah, isn't he? His name was Higgins, F.R. Higgins. He was our managing director for a few years, but he wasn't mainly a man of the theatre. He was a poet, our best, most promising poet. Ah, no, I shouldn't say promising, for he was a poet of achievement and a great friend of Yeats. Alas, he died all too young. I can never look at that splendid portrait by Sean O'Sullivan without a deep pang of regret. Oh, it seems just too bad. That guy beyond him, 
It's not yourself. That guy, as you say, Brendan, is indeed myself. We needn't dwell on the subject of the portrait, but only note the rich beauty of the painting. It's by a man called Slater, one of our finest portrait painters, and now president of our Herobernian Academy. But, look, before starting up the stairs, what about going out for a cup of coffee and a cigarette? That sounds okay by me. Oh, I'd like that. Or a bottle of stout. Right, let's go. Oh, oh, in here. Here's the orchestra in for a little rehearsal, so our room will be much more welcome than our company. Here we are back again. There are not many pictures left for us to look at, only five, but I have a lot to tell you about them. Uh, just one step up the stairs and you'll see it better. Oh, I don't care a lot for it. Ah, you're quite right. It's the only poor picture in the hall. It was painted by an old Irish woman. At least, she was old when she died, 90-something. Her name was Sarah Purser, a rich, witty old woman, and she could paint very good pictures and some not so good. And this is one of her not so goods. But when she offered the portrait to us, we were delighted to accept it. For our gallery wouldn't be complete if there wasn't in it a portrait of Sarah Allgood. Oh, gee. So that's Sarah Allgood. Oh, I've heard a lot about her. Of course you have. Oh, I don't think we'd ever had an actress to compare with her. Of course, every great player is unique. And in a sense, it's ridiculous to make comparisons, but Sarah Allgood was peculiarly unique. I speak in the past tense, because it's years since she played here, but she's still very much alive, thank God. To begin with, she had a marvellous voice. You've heard of Sarah Bernhardt's voice of gold. I only heard the French Sarah in her old age, and her voice then did not particularly impress me. Other things about her did, immensely. But our Sarah's voice had a range, a depth, a clarity impossible to describe. It was gold and silver, and if she so wished, iron. Oh, gift of God, I guess. Ah, yes. God gave her, as it were, just the ingredients. It was for her herself to fashion and mould and use them. How often have I known her to get to the theatre an hour before rehearsal and, standing alone on the stage, practice her vocal exercises to a theatre empty, save for the chars. Consequently, eventually, she had perfect control of her voice, which I admit must have begun something wonderful, but it was her own hard work which made it unique. But don't think she was just a fine speaker. She's an actress to her fingertips, a mistress of comedy as well as of tragedy. She created the part of Juno in Juno and the Peacock. That's a Dublin slum play, and the Dublin slum accent is not very beautiful. But to that part, she brought all her motherly instincts. She was always a perfect mother on the stage, a tender mother, a domineering mother. Oh, she could be harsh if the part demanded harshness, 
and she made Juno a thing to be long remembered. And what humour she had. Oh, I wish you could have seen her in some of Lady Gregory's early comedies, in The Jackdaw or Hyacinth Halvey. Lady Gregory loved her dearly, and she adored Lady Gregory. Dear Sally, how she and I used to fight in the old days. Oh, about what? Yes, what did you scrap about? Oh, the silliest things. Oh, I've forgotten them. The things actresses do scrap about, but we forgave and forgot very quickly. She made my first two plays, so I should never have said a cross word to her. And she's not here now? No. She's in Hollywood, worse luck. You Americans have taken so many of our good players. Barry Fitzgerald, J.M. Kerrigan, Arthur Shields. Ah, we mustn't grudge you them. You haven't enough good ones of your own, you know, to get on with our island. <laughs> <laughs> They're earning what they deserve, and we have as good a company as ever we had. But... If Sarah Allgood walked on the stage this evening, what a cheer there'd be. You'd hear her down to the Liffey. One often sees her on the screen, but I've never seen her yet in a part worthy of her genius. She's happy in Hollywood. She has a big house of her own, and hens, and she drives a car. My, I wouldn't trust myself in a car with Sally at the wheel. Why? When she was learning to ride a bicycle, practicing behind the custom house, her teacher advised her to give it up. He said she'd be a menace to the public. <laughs> I get long letters from her now and then, and she sends me tea. Again, bless her. Now, a step up. A man. Yes, in a sort of fancy dress. Ah, yes. That's Arthur Sinclair, a contemporary of Sarah Allgood's. When those two were acting together, and you had Kerrigan and Fred O'Donovan and Moira O'Neill and Sidney Morgan in the other parts, then you'd have a performance to make you sit up and remember and remember. Uh, the fancy dress, David, is because the artist painted Sinclair as King James in a play of Lady Gregory's called The White Cockade. The picture was painted by her son Robert, a beautiful painter, killed flying over Italy in the 1914-18 war. Sinclair was, is a great actor. He's known best of the public as a comedian, yet grand and rich as his comedy is, I like always better to remember his tragic parts. In a little play called The Piedish, as a brutal farmer in a play of mine called The Crossroads, above all, as a blind man in The Well of the Saints. He's not Sir Allgood's lovely voice, but he's all her versatility. Perhaps he's even more versatile than she is. He acts often in London, and I'll read grand notices of his performances, but I haven't seen him act for years. Uh, that striking drawing at the top of the stairs is by the English artist Augustus John. Years ago, in 1921, when we were deep in the Anglo-Irish War, things went very hard with the theatre here. We'd a curfew at half past eight, and to raise money to keep us alive, an Irish friend of ours, J.B. Fagan, arranged a series of lectures in his great drawing room in London. Yates lectured, and Shaw came, and read the first act. It had not yet been played or published, or back to Methuselah. We made quite a lot of money, and Augustus John gave us this drawing to be auctioned. Fagan said, wittily enough, 
that it depicts Sarah Allgood and her sister Maura O'Neill not allowing the new actress to have a look in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I'm afraid actresses are often like that. Not always. Actors are generally much more generous. But now, now, look across. No, we'll go downstairs and look at them from the floor. Grand women, or the top one's a beauty. You're right. Her name is Moira Shule. She was one of the earliest and the best of our actresses. She lacked the power of Sarah Allgood, and she hadn't the diablerie of Sarah's sister, Moira O'Neill, whose portrait is hanging below, but she had a grace and a charm and a poetic beauty that was all her own. I never knew her well as an actress. She was a little before my time, but we meet fairly often, and she doesn't seem to have lost a fraction of her delicacy and charm. Yeats painted it, oh, so many years ago. It's a very poetic picture, don't you think? The portrait hanging below is by him also, painted years later in New York. I guess the girls were different. <laughs> they certainly were. Moira O'Neill, she's their all good sister. How can I describe her? That's the heartbreaking thing about acting. It is made afresh each night, and each night perishes like a soap bubble. Collie Sibber said it so much better than I can when he wrote 200 years ago trying to describe the great Betterton in Shakespeare. The animated graces of the player can live no longer than the instant breath and motion that presents them, or at best, can but faintly glimmer through the memory or imperfect attestation of a few surviving spectators. Moira O'Neill doesn't faintly glimmer through my memory. She is as vivid as when I saw her in the shadow of the glen, the first night I was ever in this theatre, October the 8th, 1908, the night of my first play here. She was beautiful, dark, very Irish-looking, her qualities were quite different to her sisters. When I came to the theatre first, there was a certain rivalry between them. There needn't have been. Sally could do things Molly couldn't touch, and vice versa. Sally's tragedy was grandiose. Molly's was intimate and personal. She could be deliciously impish. In her Peggy and Mike, in the playboy that your father disliked, she ran through the whole scale of the emotions. She was practical, harsh, playful, loving. Everything a young girl can be, right up to our last heartbroken cry. I don't believe there'll ever be such a pigging Mike again. She acted with every fibre of her body. I have seen her standing in the wings, waiting for our cue, cigarette in her mouth, a girl whispering gaily, rattled and dressed as an old woman, but still a girl. Then the cue came. The cigarette was crushed out, and in an instant every muscle in her body seemed to alter. Her face shaped itself exactly to those lines which had looked so absurd. The young voice cracked, and she hobbled onto the stage, an old cork countrywoman. She was a bit of a dipple, which is not the same thing, I tell you know, Mr. McNeil, as being a devil. Men were crazy after her. And she went on tour one summer in England, not with our company, 
and vowed she'd come back with three engagement rings and did. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Well, that's the end of our little picture show. Is that all there is? Well, we haven't room to hang any more here. Of course, there's a lot of stuff in the green room. Oh, well, couldn't we go along and oh, have a look fine at... if it's not taking too much of your time. Not at all, if you'd really care to. If we'd really care. Uh, very well. We'll go through this door and across the stage. Uh, I don't think they're rehearsing this morning. Now, mind the steps. I'll go first and hold the door open. <coughs> I've told you to mind the steps. I forgot the Well, you haven't sprained an ankle. No. I'll switch on a light. I'm glad Dusty Wright isn't here. He hates my finger on the switch. He's always got his eye on the electric light bill, and of course, right there. But, but gosh, this isn't the stage. Uh, yes, it is. But, uh, but it, it, it doesn't go anywhere. No, it's only about 12 or 14 feet deep. I've no head for figures. You see, uh, there's a lane just behind. We can't get much more depth. But one of these days, and really within a few years, we'll have a new grand theater. I suppose some of us old Abbey stagers will regret the passing of this pocket handkerchief of the stage. I can't think without emotion of all the grand plays and the grand players who have trod these boards. Ah, there'll be just as good plays and players to come. But uh, you see, we've quite a good deal of space here on the far side of the stage, room for props and scenery. If players were nearly always friends of mine, the stage staff were always friends. I can't remember a decent row between us. I like to dwell on their names. Sometimes they must be only in memoriam. I mean, because they are dead. But others, oh, thank goodness, they're very much alive. But in memory, dear Barney Murphy, I think the best prompter we ever had. Though once I myself, Brendan, was supposed to be a good prompter. Oh, are there good and bad prompters? I thought you just spat out the words. It's not quite as easy as that. You need to know when a player has really dried up. If the sentence is, I forget, you spit, as you say, I forget, I forget, until at last the player says in desperation, yes, I know I forget. <laughs> but there was a time when Sally Allgood wouldn't go on in a new play unless I was crouching at the back of the fire ready to help her. But then this corner of the stage is so full of memories. But of course, Topping everybody, Sean Barlow. How afraid of him I was 35 years ago. I think I'm a bit afraid of him still. His lunch of cocoa and his study of Greek. He's telling you that what you asked for was perfectly impossible. And the next day the impossible was in your hands. The scenery and furniture, you see, is only a small bit of what we use. A repertory theatre has to accumulate so much scenery. The costumes... We won't go upstairs to see Miss Devoy. I'm not afraid of her. She is an infallible memory. I would say to her vaguely, there was that pale green silk dress uh, 25 years ago, very pale, and Miss Devoy will go into a dream, and tomorrow the dress will be there. But we haven't yet got near the green room. 
You see, I could talk for hours about the workers. Come up these steps. I haven't very, very much time. Uh, well, it's really a green room? Yes. So few theatres nowadays have a green room. I mean, a room where players can sit down and talk with each other, perhaps play a game of cards or darts while waiting for the third act. They're playing chess this morning. I think I shouldn't have bothered to bring you round, for really there's nothing very distinguished to show you. But you see, those clever photographs, those are of the players you were seeing in the play last night. Eileen Crow. I often think a better Juno than Sarah Allgood, because more slum, without the poetry which Sarah couldn't resist bringing into the part. And F.J. McCormick, of course, the best actor we ever had. Oh, yes, I'm not forgetting Barry Fitzgerald and Fred O'Donovan Arthur Sinclair. But one week, F.J. used to be Joxer, and the next week, King Lear or Oedipus. There's a richness for you. Oh, now, you'll be bored if I went from photograph to photograph, praising everyone, because I must praise them all. May Craig, Arthur Shields, Maureen Delaney, all these lovely geniuses of players I've worked with for so many years. But those others are five powerful photos. Yes, uh, they were taken by a man called Perry MacDonnell, a Scot of New York. He died a few years ago. He photographed Yeats, A.E., Colum, whose portrait you saw in the vestibule, James Stevens and myself. Perry would only photograph men, and he was independent. President Hoover commanded him to the White House. Perry declined the invitation, as he wasn't interested in Hoover's face, and he wasn't interested in his politics. Well, the room seems so full of junk. I suppose it is junk, but always important junk. Those presses are all crammed with scripts of plays and parts as hard to keep correct as scenery and props and wardrobe. Uh, but there are a few important pictures in the room. A rare portrait, an early one of Lady Gregory over the fire by A. And then this grand portrait by Dermot O'Brien of Barry Fitzgerald as the king in Lady Gregory's play, The Golden Apple. It's my property, but of course it's better it should hang here than in my small home. And I have a noble painting of Fred O'Donovan as Robert Emmett, painted years ago by James Slater. Oh, I suppose there have been a lot of plays about Emmett. Not as many as you might think, and perhaps none of them very good. My play about him, The Dreamers, wasn't the best, but it attempted to say historically, realistically, I mean, not historically. I mean, I didn't wave a flag. Of course, I was only copying the headline Lady Gregory set in her folk history plays, but looking at Barry Fitzgerald and thinking of Fred O'Donovan, I think how differently they achieved fame. Fred O'Donovan, from the moment of his first appearance on the stage, was an actor par excellence. I don't mean to say he didn't improve and enrich himself, that he didn't go from strength to strength, but he didn't have to grope and stumble for a couple of years as so many players have to do. Barry had to grope and stumble, and then suddenly shone out. I don't think McCormick had to grope, but he had some experience before I started work with him. But Eileen Crow, in her early days, nearly broke my heart. Oh, you fell for her, huh? No. I'd often have liked to fall on her and beaten her hard. <laughs> 
She took her work so carelessly. An hour and a half lateness for a rehearsal was nothing to her. How often have I not longed to tell her off fiercely? But oh, from the first audition she gave me, I knew we had an actress and a voice. And then suddenly she knew she was an actress, pulled up her socks and worked like a demon at her profession, worked as a player must work. But now, I babbled on too long, but I could go on talking about these players, these plays, these workers for hours and more. I'm boring you. A parcel for you, Mr. Robinson. Edwin's to pay. Oh, slow. Uh, what is it about? Oh, I know. It's those raisins my brother is sending me from Pretoria. I, I don't think it's from Pretoria, Mr. Robinson. It, it seems to me to, to come from Hollywood, from Miss Sarah Allgood, and it's two pounds a tea. Ah, you see, I wasn't lying when I said that Sarah Allgood sends me tea. And, of course, one of the pounds must go for Christmas to Mrs. Martin, <coughs> one of our best workers, who, like all good Irish women, loves tea. Oh, and I'll ask tonight if Sean Barlow would like a pound of tea, and if he does, both of them will drink in memory of Sir Allgood and Lady Gregory. Oh, but here's Aria Mooney coming in for rehearsal, and she's a devil for punctuality, so we'd better clear her. Well, it was sure nice and homely, you know, in Montana. Ah, isn't it far away? You know, when I was at Masula that summer, everyone was so kind, Professors, students, everyone. But sometimes I'd get very sick for Ireland. I'd remember about 3,000 miles of sea from Ireland to New York, and then about 3,000 miles of train from New York to the Rockies. Would I ever arrive home again? And then in Butte, with Professor Merriam, I went down a copper mine, 3,000 feet down, not miles. And there in the dripping heat, the mine's lowest level, I was greeted in soft West Cork accents with, Do you know Drimley? Have you ever been in Clonakilty? Household names to me. So, perhaps you, Brendan, felt a scrap of what I felt when you know that I can talk to you about Montana. And good... Oh, yes, Rhea, we're going, we're going. Uh, goodbye, good luck. Remember me to Professor Merriam when you get back. And maybe next summer I'll, I'll get again to Sligo, Sean, and I hope you're there.